Isaiah 54. I'll start reading from uh, the beginning of chapter 54 to give us a flavor of it. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widow, widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. A holy one of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then, uh, just turn with me to chapter 55. We'll read the first few verses of that. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. For those of us who are regular members of the church here, we want to thank you for what we've been learning from this prophecy of Isaiah. We pray, Lord, that as we uh, look briefly at these two chapters, that you would help us once again to get a, a grasp of your great purposes for your people, to sense the warmth of your heart towards us. And Lord, uh, as we once again meet with you, we pray that we would be changed and transformed by that experience. Please then, Lord, use this time we have studying your word for your eternal glory. In Christ's name. Amen. At this time of the year, I always try to give a bit of time to reviewing the last year and looking forward to the next one, just as uh, Peter did in his prayer. Actually, there's an, there's an oak tree on our family farm, the farm where I was brought up, which I have sat under, I think, at some time over the Christmas period, almost every year for at least the last 25 years. It's at, it stands on the top of a hill. And from that vantage point, I feel that, that uh, I can look out over the world with a sense of detachment and just think about what has been happening. I think uh, I've thought through most of my life events, major life events, under that, uh, uh, under that oak tree, whether they be happy or sad. It's 
very important, I think, for human beings to stop with a bit of detachment and take stock of what's been happening to them. Look forward to what might be happening in the next year. I wonder what your personal uh, review would include in that. Review of 1998. Perhaps you've had some good things, some bad. Perhaps some things have stayed absolutely the same for the last year. Perhaps other things have changed completely. Perhaps some of your uh, uh, worst hopes, uh, worst fears didn't happen. Perhaps some of your greatest hopes did. Or perhaps it was the other way around. What about 1999 as well? We're nearly there, as Peter said, the last service before uh, the next year. And that's the great year that leads up to uh, the millennium celebrations. What can we expect as individuals? What can we expect as a church as well? What can we expect in the churches that we belong to? Well, Isaiah actually, in a sense, in these two chapters, is doing exactly what uh, I'm suggesting we should do. He's stopping and taking stock. You've been here, we've been studying all the way from chapter 40 up to this point. And the whole of that uh, section of Isaiah has been addressed to Israel in exile in Babylon. And uh, uh, we have seen an unfolding story of how God is going to help his people Israel. They are going to be released from their captivity in Babylon, they are assured. But actually Isaiah uh, has revealed to them a far bigger perspective than that. He's actually, uh, uh, through mention of a mysterious servant, told them that they'll not only be released from Babylon, that's really a rather minor thing. No, this servant will bring justice to all the nations, we learned. This servant will bring salvation to the ends of the earth, even. And then uh, in chapter 53, we were studying just a couple of uh, weeks ago, most importantly, this servant is going to bring forgiveness to mankind because this servant is going to be prepared to take the sins of mankind onto his shoulders, die in their stead, and so release us from the penalty of our sin and give us forgiveness. Isaiah has actually widened and deepened his vision far beyond the local situation that Israel was in. Now he's all talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about the final forgiveness that all believers enjoy in heaven. And that's where he's got to at the end of chapter 53. Now at the beginning of chapter 54, he looks back over all that. And uh, as he contemplates it, he contemplates what it might mean for the people of God then. If God is going to do all of these things, if God is going to bring justice to the nations, salvation, if God is going to give complete forgiveness, what might that mean for the people of God? Actually, in any age... And he says, in these two chapters, I think, you can summarize it by saying... What that means is that all 
people who have faith in God will be people who have a very solid, confident hope. They can be confident about the future. We can be confident about 1999 because of God's intention for his people. I mean, let me show you how he unravels that, that sense of confidence and expectation then in these two chapters. First of all, in chapter 54, he says, the people of God, from now on, because of what God has revealed about his intention for them, the people of God will be like a multiplying family. Sing, 54 verse 1, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman and of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Childlessness was not just a personal grief in the ancient world, it was a source of shame. A woman who didn't have a child was under a cloud. But Isaiah says, in the light of what I've been saying to you, even the barren woman should be singing. Because, he said, she will have more children than her womb could ever produce. More, you who are never in labor, more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband, he says. There's a fruitfulness about being part of the people of God, he says. You know, amongst nomadic peoples, it was actually the women who were responsible for erecting the tents where the family lived. Isaiah says, uh, you women actually need to be uh, starting to extend your accommodation a little because of what I'm going to do for you as God's people. Verse uh, 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in the desolate cities. That fruitfulness that you are going to going to to have, that expanding family of faith, says Isaiah, will remove any sense of shame you may have had. Verse four: Do not be afraid; you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace; you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The root problem, says Isaiah, the root problem for why in the past you, Israel, were not fruitful is because God, your husband, had deserted you, but not forever. The Lord will call you back, verse 6, as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's what he's going to do. He may have been angry with Israel for a while. They may have gone into exile for a while. But now, 
His overwhelming love is going to find its expression in them forever. In fact, he says, remember the days of Noah, he says. Long ago, in fact, I brought a flood over the whole earth, didn't I? But then what happened after that flood? I promised that there would never be another global flood like it. Well, he says, I'm making a similar promise to you now, he says. But then never again will I desert my people. Verse 9. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken, the hills be removed, my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. My covenant of peace uh, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Such promises find their fulfillment in God's love for his people, the church. Because he has won our forgiveness, remember, at the cost of Christ's death on the cross, so he need never bring judgment on our heads. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul says about that? There is no condemnation, he says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will never desert us. So there is no end to the fruitfulness of Christian people's lives. That's what Isaiah is saying. Because of that, I'm very excited about 1999. May well be that uh, uh, people here sense their own fragility, their own physical limitations, like, like that like that barren woman that Isaiah was talking about. Perhaps, you, perhaps your particular weaknesses are due to age, or perhaps they are rooted in your past, or your, your, your sense of your limited gifts, or, or perhaps some uh, physical or, or emotional damage that you have. And Isaiah says, you do not need to weep about the ways in which... Uh, uh, your body or your circumstances have made you fruitless if you have faith in God. Because in fact, God will make you overwhelmingly fruitful. See? Those who are reconciled with God, those who truly know what it means to be forgiven, to be enjoying God's unfailing love, are fruitful no matter what other limitations they may have, like that barren woman, they are fruitful. Haven't you seen that in people's lives? People whom the world would have just ignored. People whom you would have thought in many circumstances should have, should have felt downtrodden, and perhaps even shamed in society. And yet, because of the fact that they love God and they know God loves them, they somehow radiate a joy and life which catches light in other people, bears fruit. And churches, too, can expect to be fruitful as bodies of believers, enjoying God's forgiveness. 
you know, I have to say, after years of observing churches in this, in this country, I've come to a, a pretty firm conclusion. If you find a small church which is not growing in a large center of population, then don't look at the community around for the reasons for that. Now look for the reasons for its lack of growth within the church itself. Because a healthy church in normal environment does grow. Now, of course, there, there, are, there are some parts of the world where the spiritual situation is, is so tough that, that uh, even the best churches are tiny. But that is not the case in this country at all. As a nation, we're not perhaps in a, in a phase of great awakening, but where the gospel is preached in Britain today, churches grow. Steadily, they grow. Of course, uh, village churches will have a limit to how far they can, uh, they can grow if they're in a very small centre of population. But a church that is in a large centre of population will grow. It is God's normal intention for a church that is enjoying its Christian life to grow. God intends his people to be fruitful. That's what it says. And then the Lord's goodness, we are growing as a church. That growth is, uh, uh, is not dramatic, but overall, we are growing. And during the next year, uh, we may well need to do some lengthening of cords, as, uh, as strengthening of stakes, as Isaiah describes it here. And it is possible to be overconfident, you know. I received a book... Um, no, not the book, in fact, I just declined to take the book, a, a review of a book that um, they were trying to make me buy, which uh, encouraged me to prepare for the overwhelming flood of church growth that I was going to enjoy in 1999. I think it suggested that we might uh, multiply tenfold in a year. Um, I decided that the price of the book was uh, more than it was worth. Oh, I'd love to see us uh, grow tenfold in a year, but I don't intend to prepare for that. If God does that sort of a miracle, then he can do the miracle of organizing us as well uh, if we grow. Now, it's, 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 uh, some people get just overexcited about that, I think. But it is a normal expectation that people who uh, are together living out life as the church of God, will grow. God tells us it will be so. Second thing that Isaiah says is that uh, uh, God's intention is that the people of God will not only be a family that is multiplying, but will be like a city that is being rebuilt. A city he says, built, in fact, with supernatural lavishness. Verse 11, Oh, afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. There are echoes here of the, the Apostle Paul's description of what it means to uh, be a good leader building up a church. 
he describes uh, in 1 Corinthians how a, a good leader will build a church with gold and silver and costly stones. There's also echoes of God's final fulfillment and of, of, of the church, not in this world, but in the new heaven and the new earth, where there is a new Jerusalem built exactly of these costly stones. In one sense, the church, the people of God, are a first anticipation of that. People built together at great expense. It's not particularly good building practice that he's describing, is it? It's totally impractical, in fact, to, uh, instead of pouring uh, concrete into the footings, pouring sapphires in for the foundations, making uh, uh, rubies into the, the battlements. But, you see, God is not building a... Uh, a practical workmanlike building. He is building something incredibly precious. He has won our forgiveness at the cost of his only son, and now he's going to build his people up with, in fact, the most expensive materials that he can find to express that preciousness of the church. And he says it's going to be a city which is built around justice. Verse 13, all your sons will be taught by the Lord. And great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come, from, uh, come near you. It will be absolutely secure, this city. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame, who forges a weapon, weapon fit for its work. And it is I who created the destroyer to work havoc. They'd experienced that in the past. But no weapon forged against you will prevail. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is their vindication from me, says the Lord. That's what God wants to build. A beautiful, precious, righteous, secure city of his people. That's God's, uh, God's intention for 1999 again, for the people of God. He is building something very very special. I, I think it's vital that we understand the preciousness of the church to God. In our individual lives, I think it's, it's, it's quite possible to be slipshod in our faith, isn't it? To say, I, I trust Christ for my salvation, I'll do the, the basic things necessary to be a Christian, and leave it at that. There are lots and lots of people who treat their Christian lives like that. They are not particularly changed. They don't have any particular interest in, uh, as verse 13 said, being taught by the Lord. No surprise that they actually don't feel themselves secure. They don't feel that Isaiah's promise that we will refute every tongue that accuses us is... Uh, uh, is real for them because they have no real interest 
in being built up with the, the precious stones that Isaiah is describing. No, uh, Isaiah wants us to build our lives with the precious materials of, of prayer, real prayer, of serious Bible study, of godly living, of living in good relationship with other people. Then, he says, it will be built into that secure city that he wants us to be. And it's important that we understand that for the church corporately too. The church must be built in the same way. You know, it's possible to grow churches very, very quickly, and yet they, they, are, they are more or less nothing more than high and straw. And God is not interested in that. In fact, worse than that, God is positively angry about that. No, any church that is worth having, he says, must be a beautiful thing. It must be beautiful before it is big. He wants a church where everyone is taught by the Lord, where everyone is eager to learn. He wants to know a church which, which knows real peace, he says, which recoils from the horror of the petty feuds and fighting that so often mars church life. And such a church, he says, is what I intend to build. Is that the church you want to be part of in 1999? And it is up to each one of us to give our whole hearts and lives and energies to that, to building something precious, to being taught by the Lord, to pursuing peace. That's God's intention, God's firmly stated intention for his people. It will only reach its final fulfillment in the new Jerusalem but it can find its first reflections. It's for, we can get the first taste in a real, authentic church life. Well, chapter 54, then, speaks primarily to the people of God as a whole. This is my intention for the church, says God, to make you into a multiplying family, to make you into a beautiful city. But chapter 55 turns to individuals. Each of us stands alone before God as well. And God uh, says there to us, listen to me. Verse 1, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. It's a great invitation, you see. No money is needed. It's not because, of course, it's worthless what God is offering. It's because he's paid the price. Price in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has bought our forgiveness. Now all we need to do is come. That's what God says. Come, you who are thirsty. The only qualification for us as individuals is that we need to feel a sense of need. We need to feel 
thirsty. And yet what do we do with our hunger? We waste it on things that just don't last. Verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest of fare. How appropriate to read that verse a couple of days after Christmas. How much of our, uh, our earnings uh, for the month of December got spent on things that are already history, that are already just memories, that actually for our long-term welfare are useless. Why spend money on it? Says Isaiah. Why? Why, in fact, spend all your life just satisfying your immediate hunger, which, uh, 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 for which you, you have a great craving, which you try to satisfy one moment, and you discover, in fact, is just as, as, uh, as burning as it ever was in the past. Why, in fact, feed yourselves with things that in reality are not food? When you know deep down that your deepest hunger is a sense of aching in our soul. There is satisfaction, says Isaiah, deeper than our physical needs. A satisfaction which feeds our very souls Verse 3, give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. That's what he's promising. He's saying, come to me, be brought alive, be satisfied at the very deepest level because of all that I've told you about in these chapters up to now, most especially the forgiveness won by Jesus Christ, described in chapter 53, now come to me, he says. Each one of us, then, needs to respond to that. And one of the things that frightens me terribly is when I see Christians, in fact, reading passages like that and thinking, oh, that's, that's just in my past. I needed to do that once, but I'm okay now. That's just for other people. Now, if you have no sense of thirst, if you have no sense of need to come to God, then actually that, does, that defines you as not a Christian. Definition of a Christian is they are someone who are who at the same time eternally satisfied with God, but eternally hungry for him too. Someone who needs constantly, every day, to come to God, to be renewed by God, to know God afresh, to hear those words, come to me. Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good. 
Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live, says God. Verses 6 and 7, the tune changes slightly. Not uh, just come to me, not just listen to me, but turn to me, says God now. Says, says Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon God is more than ready to forgive. We know that. But he is looking for people who seek him. He is looking for people who turn to him. He is looking for people who are prepared to forsake the way that they were going and make a start at least at turning round and going the way that God wants them to go. Turn to me and seek forgiveness. You can't just walk your own way, he says. Now, it was Catherine the Great who was reputed to have said, I shall be an autocrat. That's my business. And God will forgive me. That's his. How sadly mistaken she was. It's not the way God works. Now, God says, turn to me. I'm not expecting perfection, he says but I am expecting you to turn to me, to listen to me, to follow. Come to me. And he says, this is not the desperate pleading of an impotent parent. This is, this is not me just whining at you whilst you run along and do your own thing and ignore me. No, this call that I am making to you as God is absolutely irresistible to those to whom I address it. Look at verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Has he addressed that call to you? personally this morning? That call to come, that call to listen, that call to turn? Do, do you have a sense as you read those words that God is speaking to you from his heart to your soul? Because if you do, you see, you will find that that call is absolutely irresistible. Water makes things wet, doesn't it? It can't help make things wet. Well, God's word makes people change. It can't help make people change. God's word is heard in our hearts. He will achieve his purpose for us. You may resist it. You may even resist it for years. It's possible for people to walk walk away, having heard the voice of God, and to, to remain in the wilderness for long periods 
But if he has called you, you will know he has and you will not be able to resist him. God's word is unstoppable in people's lives. So what does that mean for us in 1999 then? What does that mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as individuals? Well, for both of us, it must mean that we are people of great hope. How could we be anything else, having read through these chapters of, uh, of Isaiah? God's intention is to make his people multiply and be fruitful. God's intention is to build his people up into a precious city. And God's intention for each one of us is that when he speaks to us, we will listen, we will be changed, we will be filled with joy. Verse 11. Verse 12, sorry. You will go out in joy, be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. So great will be the rejoicing, even in all of creation, at what God is doing that the hills and the trees, the fields, will be found celebrating. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, we want to thank you, first of all, that your intentions for your people, for this world, are entirely good. Thank you for the note of joy that uh, springs from these chapters. And Lord, uh, we, each one of us, want to know that joy and that exuberance and that confidence we pray in the coming year. For our life corporately as your people, Please, Lord, uh, build us up in the ways that you intend to do. For our lives individually, Lord. Help us every day to come to you, to listen to you, to turn to you. To have our thirst satisfied, our hunger satisfied. And Lord, for any of us who feel we need to turn to you for the first time, save us from delaying that, Lord, we pray. Help us to do it right now and to put it into practice in the coming year. In Christ's name.